So then they were beleaguered. But Croesus, supposing that the siege would last a long time, sent messengers again from his city to his allies. Whereas his former envoys had been sent to summon them to muster at Sardis in five months' time, these were to announce that Croesus was besieged and to entreat help with all speed. So he sent to the Lacedaemonians as well as the rest of his allies. Now at this very time, the Spartans themselves had a feud on hand with the Argives, in respect to the country called Thyrea. For this was a part of the Argive territory which the Lacedaemonians had cut off and occupied. All the land towards the west, as far as Malaya, belonged then to the Argives. And not the mainland only, but the island of Cythera and the other islands. The Argives came out to save their territory from being cut off. Then after debate, the two armies agreed that 300 of each side should fight, and whichever party won should possess the land. The rest of each army was to go away to its own country and not be present at the battle, for it was feared that if the armies remained on the field, the men of either party would render help to their comrades if they saw them losing. Having thus agreed, the armies drew off and picked men on each side, were left and fought. Neither could gain advantage in the battle. At last, of 600, there were left only three. Alcanor and Chromios of the Argives, Athreides of the Lacedaemonians. These three were left alive at nightfall. Then the two Argives, deeming themselves victors, ran to Argos. But Athreides, the Lacedaemonian, spoiled the Argive dead and bore the armor to his own army's camp and remained in his place. On the next day, both armies came to learn the issue. After a while, both claimed the victory. The Argives pleading that more of their men had survived, the Lacedaemonians showing that the Argives had fled. While their men had stood his ground and despoiled the enemy dead, at last the dispute so ended that they joined battle and fought. Many on both sides fell, but the Lacedaemonians had the victory. Ever after this, the Argives, who before had worn their hair long by fixed custom, shaved their heads and made a law with a curse added thereto that no Argive should grow his hair, and no Argive woman should wear gold, till they should recover Thyrea. And the Lacedaemonians made a contrary law, that ever after they should wear their hair long, for till now they had never worn it so. Athreides, the one survivor of the three hundred, was ashamed, it is said, to return to Sparta after all the men of his company had been slain, and he killed himself on the spot at Thyrea. All this had befallen the Spartans, when the Sardian herald came to entreat their help for Croesus, now besieged. Yet for all that, when they heard the herald, they prepared to send help. But when they were already equipped and their ships ready, there came a second messenger, which told them that the fortress of the Lydians was taken, and Croesus held a prisoner. Then indeed, though greatly grieved, they ceased from their enterprise. Now this is how Sardis was taken. When Croesus had been besieged for fourteen days, Cyrus sent horsemen about in his army to promise rewards to him who should first mount the wall. After this, the army made an assault, but with no success. Then, all the rest being at a stand, a certain Mardian called Heroides essayed to mount by a part of the citadel where no guard had been set. For here the height, the height on which the citadel stood was sheer and hardly to be assaulted, and none feared that it could be taken by attack. This was the only place where Meles, the former king of Sardis, had not carried the lion which his concubine had borne him, the Talmassians having declared that if this lion were carried round the walls, Sardis could never be taken. Meles then carried the lion round the rest of the wall of the Acropolis, where it could be assaulted, 
but neglected this place because the height was sheer and defied attack. It's on the side of the city which faces towards Timolus. So then a chance that on the day before this Mardian Herodias had seen one of the Lydians descend by this part of the citadel after a helmet that had fallen down and fetch it. He took note of this and considered it, and now he himself climbed up and other persons after him. Many ascended, and thus was Sardis taken, and all the city liked to be sacked. I will now tell what befell Croesus himself. He had a son, of whom I have already spoken, a likely enough youth, save that he was dumb. Now in his past days of prosperity, Croesus had done all that he could for his son, and besides resorting to other plans, he had sent to Delphi to inquire of the oracle concerning him. The Pythian priestess thus answered him, Lydian, of many the Lord, thou knowest not the boon that thou askest. Wish not nor pray that the voice of thy son may be heard in the palace. Better it were for thee that dumb he abide as aforetime. Luckless that day shall be when first thou hearest him speaking. So at the taking of the fortress, a certain Persian, not knowing who Croesus was, came at him with intent to kill him. Croesus saw him coming, but by stress of misfortune he was past caring, and would soon be smitten to death as not. But this dumb son, seeing the Persian coming, in his fear and his gro- <laughs> in his fear and his grief, broke into speech and cried, "Man, do not kill Croesus!" That was the first word he uttered, and after that, for all the days of his life, he had the power of speech. So the Persians took Sardis and made Croesus himself prisoner, he having reigned fourteen years and been besieged fourteen days, and, as the oracle foretold, brought his own great empire to an end. Having then taken him, they led him to Cyrus. Cyrus had a great pyre built, on which he set Croesus bound in chains, and twice seven Lydian boys beside him. Either his intent was to sacrifice these first fruits to some one of his gods, or he desired to fulfill a vow, or it may be, that learning that Croesus was a God-fearing man, he set him for this cause on the pyre, because he would fain know if any deity would save him from being burnt alive. It's related then that he did this, but Croesus, as he stood on the pyre, remembered even in his evil plight how divinely inspired was that saying of Solon, that no living man was blessed. When this came to his mind, having till now spoken no word, he sighed deeply and groaned, and thrice uttered the name of Solon. Cyrus heard it, and bade his interpreters ask Croesus, Who was this on whom he called? They came near and asked him. Croesus at first would say nothing in answer, but presently, being compelled, he said, It is one with whom I would have given much wealth, that all sovereigns should hold converse. This was a dark saying to them, and again they questioned him the words which he spoke. As they were instant and troubled him, he told them then how Solon, an Athenian, had first come, and how he had seen all his royal state and made light of it, saying thus and thus, and how all that happened to Croesus at Sol- was as Solon had said, though he spoke with less regard to Croesus than to mankind in general, and chiefly those who deemed themselves blessed. When Croesus thus told his story, the pirate had already been kindled, and the outer parts of it were burning. Then Cyrus, when he heard from the interpreters what Croesus said, repented of his purpose. He bethought him that he, being also a man, was burning alive another man who had once been as fortunate as himself. Moreover, he feared the retribution, and it came to his mind that there was no stability in human affairs. Wherefore, he gave command to quench the burning fire with all speed, and bring Croesus and those with him down from the pyre. 
but his servants could not for all their endeavor now master the fire. Then, so the Lydians relate, when Croesus was aware of Cyrus's repentance and saw all men striving to quench the fire, but no longer be able to check it, he cried aloud to Apollo, praying that if the god had ever been pleased with any gift of his offering, he would now come to his aid and save him from his present destruction. Thus with weeping he invoked the god, and suddenly, in a clear and windless sky, clouds gathered and a storm burst, and there was most violent rain so that the pyre was quenched. Then indeed Cyrus perceived that Croesus was a good man and one beloved of the gods. And bringing him down from the pyre, he questioned him, saying, What man persuaded you, Croesus, to attack my country with an army, and be my enemy instead of my friend? O king, said Croesus, it was I who did it, and brought thereby good fortune to you and ill to myself. But the cause of it all was the god of the Greeks, and that he encouraged me to send my army. No man is so foolish to desire war more than peace. For in peace sons bury their fathers, but in war fathers bury their sons. But I must believe that heaven willed all this to be. So said Croesus. Then Cyrus loosed him and set him near to himself, and took much thought for him. For both he and all that were with him were astonished when they looked upon Croesus. He, for his part, was silent, deep in thought. Presently he turned and said, for he saw the Persians sacking the city of the Lydians, O king, am I to say to you now what's on my mind, or keep silence? Cyrus, bidding him to say boldly what he would, Croesus asked, Your honor multitude, what is this whereon they are so busily engaged? They are plundering, said Cyrus, your city and carrying off your possessions. Nay, Croesus answered, not my city nor my possessions. For I have no longer any share of all this. It is your wealth that they're ravishing. Cyrus thought upon what Croesus said, and bidding the rest withdraw, he asked Croesus what fault he saw in what was being done. Since the gods, replied Lydian, have given me to be your slave, it is right that if I have any clear sight of wrong done, I should declare it to you. The Persians are violent men by nature, and poor withal. If then you suffer to seize and hold great possessions, you may expect that he who has won most will rise and revolt against you. Now therefore do this, if what I say finds favor with you. Set men of your guard to watch all the gates. Let them take the spoil from those who are carrying it out, and say that it must be paid as tithe to Zeus. Thus shall you not be hated by them for taking their wealth by force, and they for their part will acknowledge which you act justly, and will give up the spoil willingly. When Cyrus heard this, he was exceedingly pleased, for he deemed the counsel good. And praising him greatly, and bidding his guards to act as Croesus had counseled, he said, Croesus, now that you, a king, are resolved to act and to speak aright, ask me now for whatever boon you desire forthwith. Master, said Croesus, you will best please me if you suffer me to send these my chains to that god of the Greeks, whom I chiefly honored, and to ask him if it be his custom to deceive those who serve him well. Cyrus then asking him what charge he brought against the god, that he made the request, Croesus repeated to him the tale of his own intent, and the answers of the oracles, and more especially his offerings, that how was the oracle that had heartened him to attack the Persians, and so saying, he once more instantly entreated that he might be suffered to reproach the god for all this. At this, Cyrus smiled and replied, This I will grant you, Croesus, and what other boons soever you may ask at any time, ask me. When Croesus heard this, he sent men of the Lydians to Delphi, charging them to lay his chains on the threshold of the temple, and to ask if the god were not ashamed that he had persuaded Croesus to attack the Persians, 
telling him that he would destroy Croesus's power. Of which power, they should say, showing the chains, these were the first fruits. Thus they should inquire, and further, if it were the manner of the Greek gods, to be thankless. When the Lydians came and spoke as they were charged, the priestess, it is said, thus replied, None may escape his destined lot, not even a god. Croesus hath paid for the sin of his ancestor of the fifth generation, who, being of the god of the Heraclidae, was led by the guile of a woman to slay his master, and took to himself the royal state of that master, whereto he had no right. And it was the desire of Loxius that the evil hap of Sardis should fall in the lifetime of Croesus's sons, not his own. But he could not turn the fates from their purpose, yet did he accomplish his will and favor Croesus, insofar as they would yield to him. For he delayed the taking of Sardis for three years, and this let Croesus know that though he be now taken, it is by so many years later than the destined hour. And further, Loxius saved Croesus from the burning. But as to the oracle that was given him, Croesus does not write to complain concerning it, for Loxius declared to him that if he should lead an army against the Persians, he would destroy a great empire. Therefore it behooved him, if he would take right counsel, to send and ask whether the god spoke of Croesus or Cyrus's empire. But he understood not that which was spoken, nor made any further inquiry. Wherefore now let him blame himself. Nay. When he asked that last question of the oracle, and Loxius gave him the answer concerning the mule, even that Croesus understood not, for that mule was in truth Cyrus, who was the son of two persons not of the same nation, of whom the mother was the nobler and the father of the lesser estate, for she was Median, daughter of Astyages, king of the Medians. But he was a Persian, and under the rule of the Medians, and was wedded, albeit in all regards lower than she, to one that should be his sovereign lady. Such was the answer of the priestess to the Lydians. They carried it to Sardis and told it to Croesus. And when he heard it, he confessed that the sin was not the gods, but his own. And this is the story of Croesus's rule, and of the first overthrow of Ionia. Now there are many offerings of Croesus and Hellas, not only those whereof I've spoken. There's a golden tripod at Thebes in Boeotia, which dedicated to Apollo of Ismenus. At Ephesus, there's the Noxen of gold and the greater part of the pillars, and in the temple of Pronea at Delphi, a golden shield. All these yet remain till my lifetime, but some other the offerings have perished, and the offerings of Croesus at Branchidae of the Milesians, as I've heard, are equal in weight and light to those at Delphi. Those which he dedicated at Delphi and the shrine of Amphorius were his own, the first fruits of the wealth inherited from his father. The rest came from the estate of an enemy who had headed a faction against Croesus before he became king and conspired to win the throne of Lydia for Pantelion. This Pantelion was a son of Leides and half-brother of Croesus. Croesus was Leides' son by a Carian and Pantelion by an Ionian mother. So when Croesus gained the sovereignty by his father's gift, he put the man who had conspired against him to death by drawing him across a carding cone and first confiscated his estate, then dedicated it as um, where I've said. This is all I shall say of Croesus's offerings. There are not in Lydia many marvelous things for me to tell of, if it be compared with other countries, except the gold dust which comes down from Timolus. But there is one building to be seen there, which is more notable than any, saving those of Egypt and Babylon. There is in Lydia the tomb of Leides, the father of Croesus, the base whereof is made of great stones, and the rest of it is mounted earth.
It was built by the men of the market and the artificers and the prostitutes. There remained till my time five cornerstones set on the top of the tomb, and on these was graven the record of the work done by each kind, and measurement showed that the prostitute's share of the work was the greatest. All the daughters of the common people of Lydia apply the trade of prostitution to collect dowries until they can get themselves husbands, and then they offer themselves in marriage. Now this tomb had a great circumference of six furlongs and a third, and its breadth is above two furlongs. And there's a great lake hard by the tomb, which, say the Lydians, is fed by ever-flowing springs. It's called the Gygean Lake. Such, then, is this tomb. The customs of the Lydians are like those of the Greeks, save that they make prostitutes of their female children. They were the first men known to us who coined and used gold and silver currency, and they were the first to sell by retail. And according to what they themselves say, the pastimes now in use among them and the Greeks were invented by the Lydians. These, they say, were invented among them, at the same time when they colonized Tyrrhenia. This is their story. In the region of Attis, son of Mains, there was a great scarcity of food in all Lydia. For a while the Lydians bore this with what patience they could. Presently, when there was no abatement of the famine, they fought for remedies, and diverse plans were devised by diverse men. Then it was that they invented the games of dice and knucklebones and ball, and all, the, all other forms of pastime except only draughts, which the Lydians do not claim to have discovered. Then, using their discovery to lighten the famine, they would play for the whole day every other day, that they might not have to seek for food, and the next day they ceased from their play and ate. This was their manner of life for eighteen years, but famine did not cease to plague them, and rather affected them yet more grievously. At last, their king divided the people into two portions, and made them draw lots, so that one part should remain and the other leave the country. He himself was to be the head of those who drew the lot to remain there, and his son, whose name was Terenus, of those who departed. Then one part of them, having drawn the lot, left the country and came down to Smyrna, and built ships, whereon they set all their goods that could be carried on shipboard, and sailed away to seek a livelihood in a country, till at last, after sojourning with many nations in turn, they came to the Ombrici, where they founded cities and have dwelt there ever since. They no longer called themselves Lydians, but Tyrrhenians, after the name of the king's son, who had led them thither. The Lydians then were enslaved by the Persians, 